Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning back to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 15. You'll find our Bible reading tonight on pages 852 over into 853 of the Pew Bibles. Mark chapter 15, we're beginning at verse 21, and we're reading down to verse 41. Uh, Next week, we're going to finish this four-part series by looking at how Jesus was buried and then also the story of the resurrection. But tonight, we're focusing on the crucifixion and then also the death of Jesus. So Mark 15, beginning at verse 21, reading down to verse 41, and this is God's word to us. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger uh, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up to Jerusalem with him. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15. You'll find the passage that we're looking at on pages 852 over into 853 of the Pew Bibles. And this evening we're we're coming to the very heart of our faith as we consider the events of the first Good Friday. Uh, The verses that are before us are among the most precious in all of Scripture. Unlike other passages, you could preach a series on this one passage alone. Uh, There's so much to unpack from it, yet there's a beautiful simplicity to it as well. In terms of simplicity and in terms of summarizing our faith, uh, children's hymns are among some of the most useful tools for us. If John 3.16 is the most straightforward explanation of the Christian gospel, then the children's hymn, For God So Loved the World, which is based on that verse, 
is one of the most helpful. Let me read that short children's hymn as we begin this evening. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. It doesn't quite sound as good when you read it as compared to singing it. Uh, that's the chorus. This is the verse, and it uses a clever little acrostic, and it goes like this. L is for the reason that he has died for me. I am the reason he died on the tree. F is for forgiveness, and now I am free. E is to enjoy being in his company. And that's what you sing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son being the Lord Jesus. He gave him up to die and to bear the punishment that our sins deserve. And Mark 15, 21 to 41 records the final moments of Jesus' life before his death. And, and this is it. This is the epicenter of our faith. The reason that we're here tonight. The reason that you come to church every Sunday. Mark's record of Jesus' crucifixion and death is told tersely and quickly. Uh, one of the things that we haven't pointed out in this short series is the speed at which Mark moves through his material. Uh, in terms of prep for this series, one of the things that I'm using is an ESV scripture journal of Mark's gospel. Uh, they're really helpful resources, especially if you want to go deeper into a Bible book. It's just the gospel of Mark and nothing else. And as I've been working through the sections we've looked at, I've noticed the repeated use of the word and. If you look at this section alone, you'll see that in verse 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28, all begin with the word and. Mark is, is pumping the information out. And we do you hear this? And this happened, and someone said this, and they did that, and, and, and. He, he can't communicate the life of Christ quickly enough to us. The, the, this section is no different, but despite its terse retelling, Mark takes us to the very heart of our faith. In a similar way to previous sermons in this series, our structure and points tonight will be very simple. I've summarized this section with five words that begin with C. Last week it was R, this week it's C. We're going to think about the crucifixion, the charge, the cry, the curtain, and the centurion. Our points will vary in length, and our final point will provide us with the heart application. So this is three days that changed the world, part three then. Mark, 12 to, uh, Mark 15, 21 to 41. And the first thing we're going to see is the crucifixion. We just have to go back to just after Jesus was condemned to death by Pilate. Following his irreligious trial, Jesus was led into the governor's headquarters and was mistreated. He should have been honored and worshipped, but he was abused and mocked. Pilate had Jesus scourged before he was crucified, and this in itself was a terrible ordeal. Mark tells it plainly in verse 15. He says, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verses 16 to 20 give us something of the detail of what the soldiers did when they received Jesus. He's given a purple cloak, and purple was the color of royalty, but this is given to mock him. He's also given a crown, but it's not a crown made of gold. It's one made of thorns. And we're supposed to imagine Pilate's soldiers putting it on Jesus' head while saying, you're a king, you deserve a crown. Here's one that will do. The whole scene is, is one of mockery and violence. But the scourging was awful. Prisoners would be tied to a post and, it and would be lashed with a braided leather whip that had pieces of bone and metal on it. 
The, the, the lashing lit, literally ripped chunks of skin off the prisoner's body. So scourging was intended to humiliate the prisoner, but, but also to weaken them so that crucifixion didn't last as long. In many cases, a prisoner sentenced to death in this way never made it past the scourging. Following the soldier's mockery, Christ is led out to be crucified. Verse 21 gives us the interesting detail about Simon of Cyrene. He's able to carry Jesus' cross. He's made to carry it. Normally, prisoners would carry their own crosses, but Jesus was so weakened by the ordeal of verses 15 to 20 that he was unable to. Simon of Cyrene is also identified as the father of Rufus and Alexander. Seems like a very strange detail to include, but, uh, but, but Rufus is mentioned later in the New Testament over in Romans 15, 13. And basically Mark includes this detail because he would have known Rufus. He was one of the early followers of Christ and would have been part of the church at Rome, the church that Mark wrote this gospel to. And Mark continu- continues the telling of Jesus' journey to the cross by saying that they brought him to Golgotha. Now, the precise location of Golgotha isn't known, but it's not far outside the walls of Jerusalem. At Golgotha, and in preparation for crucifixion, verse 23 tells us, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The the, the wine-myrrh mix was a narcotic that was given to condemned prisoners to dull their senses to the pain that they were about to endure. It was really a first-century anaesthetic, but Jesus doesn't take it. He willingly suffers the, the full torment of crucifixion. With all the preparations made, Mark very simply tells us, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Crucifixion was essentially death by asphyxiation. Your arms were outstretched and nailed to a horizontal beam. Your body was stretched out and your legs were nailed to a vertical beam. Gravity would have been pulling you down on the crosses uh, there, was a, there was a little plinth, though, uh, on which you could put your feet. More often than not, victims would slip on the plinth as they slipped in and out of consciousness. Well, what's fascinating about all of the Gospels is that the authors don't include any of the grisly details. That that's where the film, The Passion of the Christ, takes a wrong turn. It's, it focuses on Jesus' physical suffering, but it's the, the spiritual suffering that's most significant. Upon his nailing to the cross... Jesus enters a whole new level of suffering for the sake of his people. When someone was crucified, it was the custom of the Romans to affix a statement of the charge against the person on the vertical beam of the cross. Having told us about the build-up to the crucifixion and the moment itself, Mark moves on to mention the charge. Look at verse 26. It says, And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. John, in his gospel, gives us a little bit more detail. He tells us that Pilate provided the charge himself and that it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, the three most common languages in the Roman Empire at the time. So everybody's able to read this charge. The religious leaders weren't very happy about it. They wanted Pilate to change it to, this man said, I am the king of the Jews, but having already given them plenty, Pilate refuses. Now, the irony of the charge is that Jesus was the king of the Jews, but the Jews did not receive him. His own people rejected the Messiah. Yet for early believers, this phrase became a confession of their faith, a confession of truth. Jesus was not just a king. 
He is the king and one day will return to fully and finally establish his kingdom through the new heaven and new earth. The, the mockery of Jesus continues into verses 27 to 32. People walking past mock him. Two robbers who were crucified with him mock him. And Mark doesn't mention how one of them turns to Christ in his dying moments. And the chief priests and scribes stick a final ver verbal boot in. He saved others. He cannot save himself. The, the, their blindness is really quite astonishing. Jesus hangs on the cross for approximately six hours. Mark tells us that they crucified him around the third hour and an unusual darkness covered the land from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. This darkness was a supernatural act of God and not something like a solar eclipse. In the Old Testament, darkness represented many things, a situation of human ignorance and sin, divine lament or divine judgment. Here it communicates all of those things. Jesus is bearing God's judgment for the sin of the world, yet the tragic death of an innocent man should result in sorrow and lament. At the ninth hour, Jesus utters a despairing cry. The cry, that's our third word this evening. Look at verses 34 to 37. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus drew this lament of utter God-forsakenness from Psalm 22. It's likely that he recited the whole psalm on the cross. Jesus knew the scriptures, and he knew that he was the fulfillment of them. In some mysterious way at this moment, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is cut off and separated from God because he is bearing the sin of humanity. He is enduring God's wrath as a substitute for sinners. His cry doesn't indicate that he was bewildered or confused, as if he actually expected his father to rescue him from the cross and was disappointed. It instead expresses the terrifying cost of his sacrifice. He knew beforehand that he must die in order to fulfill his mission. Jesus could endure the pain, but the terrifying weight of utter separation from God and God forsakenness were something that he had never experienced before. So some people standing nearby think that he calls on Elijah to come and save him. There was a superstitious view of Elijah among the Jews. They held him in very high regard, but despite their speculation that he might appear, he doesn't. Mark records Jesus' death in verse 37 through 10 simple words. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The king of the Jews, the king of kings, dies. The crucifixion, the charge, the cry, and the curtain. That's our, our fourth word. Several supernatural phenomena accompany Jesus' death. Mark records two. First, the curtain of the temple is torn. With his usual brevity and clarity, Mark records the event in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Now, we need to understand that this was no ordinary curtain. This isn't a little net curtain that you have in your bathroom. This was the curtain between the most holy place and the holy place. It was made of elaborately woven fabric, and it was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. No one was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the curtain except the high priest, priest, and even he was only allowed in once a year on the Day of Atonement. Torn in two signifies the removal of separation between God and humanity. Access to God is now provided by the unique sacrifice of Jesus. It's so significant. There's an old hymn called Hark the Voice of Love and Mercy. The third verse beautifully sums up the significance of the curtain being torn. It says, Finished all the types and shadows of the ceremonial law, finished all that God had promised, death and hell no more shall awe. It is finished, it is finished, it is finished. Saints from hence your comfort draw. The supernatural tearing of this massive curtain indicates that God's people will now have direct access to his presence through Jesus. Jesus' once for all sacrificial death makes animal sacrifices in the temple obsolete. The curtain was once a huge keep out sign, but now it's removed. The curtain was a symbol of the words access denied. It's, it's tearing changes the words to access possible. The, the author of Hebrews gives us a commentary on the significance of the tearing of the curtain in Hebrews 10. We're told this, we're told, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Do do, do you hear the application the author of Hebrews gives us in light of the curtain being torn? Confidence. We can have confidence because our sins are forgiven and all the types and shadows are finished. Draw near. We can draw near to God. We can hold on to the one who is faithful. And we should stir up one another to love and good works making sure that we meet together. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, our access status has changed. It's no longer access tonight. It's access possible. Think of all the people you don't have access to. If you wanted to meet the king or the prime minister, you could send a letter requesting an audience, but your access would be denied. You'd receive a polite letter telling you, not a chance. Think of a celebrity that you like or follow. Imagine sending them a direct message on Instagram that you'd like to meet them for coffee. It just wouldn't happen. They probably wouldn't even reply. Your access would be denied. But through his death on the cross, Jesus gives us access to God. Do do we realize the privilege that is ours? Does it matter on a day-to-day basis? Do do, do we also realize that our access means that we should serve and love Jesus' church? That's the application of what the author of Hebrews says. How much we value our access to God will be seen in how much time we give to serving in Jesus' church and how much of our resources we give to Jesus' church and how much we love Jesus' people. The, The second supernatural event 
is the conversion of the centurion. That's our final point. And it takes us to the heart of the application of this passage for you if you're not a Christian. The second supernatural event is covered in Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. From the beginning of Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus is the son of God. The story begins with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. After that, we read about how God the father affirms Jesus as his son. As Jesus is baptized, the father speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. As he begins his ministry, even the demons recognize who he is. Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit in Mark 1, and the demon says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As for others in Mark's gospel, they don't really get who Jesus is. Some people understand, but not fully. The disciples, the people closest to Jesus, are like that. Sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. Peter makes a confession that Jesus is the Christ, But that's different to saying that he's the son of God. It's a different title. The high priest also asks Jesus if he is the Christ in Mark 14. And Jesus says that he is. The high priest, though, doesn't confess this. The climactic moment in Mark's gospel comes as the centurion confesses who Jesus is. It's all been building to this point. The centurion is the first person in Mark to confess Jesus as the son of God And his confession comes as he sees Jesus die on the cross. What's striking is that the first person Mark tells us who believes in Jesus is a Gentile. It's an outsider. The the, the Romans usually assigned four soldiers to guard prisoners during executions. The four soldiers were under the command of a centurion. And it's this centurion, this Roman hard man, who confesses that Jesus is the son of God. Why does he say what he says? And how do we know that he really believes? Well, he would have known who Jesus was. Imagine how his day went. Imagine the conversation that he might have had with the centurion who was on the previous shift. Quiet night last night. The Jews were kicking up a bit of a fuss about some guy called Jesus. Pilate's got him on trial at the minute. The Jews want rid of him. Pilate isn't really fussed. You might end up crucifying him. You happy enough? Yeah, I think I've heard about him, but I've got plenty of experience. I'm well into double figures for crucifixions to all be very straightforward. Pilate, of course, sentences Jesus to death, and the centurion would have led Jesus and the soldiers out to Golgotha. The centurion would have seen Jesus being mocked. He would have heard him being called the king of the Jews, and he might have even hammered in the sign that said those words, the sign that went above Jesus' head. He stands with his soldiers as Jesus is put on the cross. He stands with his soldiers as the darkness comes. And as time goes on, he begins to realize that this is no ordinary crucifixion. There's something about Jesus that he can't put his finger on. The way Jesus just took the abuse, took the mocking, took the physical suffering. The way Jesus cried out and said what he said. And then Jesus dies And he gets it. He gets it. Jesus' death on the cross becomes revelatory. 
And by that, I mean that as Jesus dies, God miraculously works and saves the most unlikely person. After all that happens, after all that is going on, after all that Jesus goes through, God supernaturally works to save a sinner. Let's finish the centurion's imaginary day. Jesus dies. The centurion goes and reports the death to Pilate. He finishes his shift later that day. He heads home. His children greet him at the door. Daddy, daddy, we're so glad to see you. His wife welcomes him home and over dinner she says to him, well, honey, how was your day? The centurion replies, the weirdest thing happened. We crucified this guy called Jesus. But you know what? I don't think we should have. I think he was innocent. In fact, in fact, I think and believe more than that. I believe that he was the son of God. Darling, be, be, be very careful. That, that kind of talk will get you into trouble. You, you might lose your job for saying something like that. No, really, this guy was different. He really was the son of God. What, what, what makes this centurion's confession so real and so believable is the fact that he has nothing to gain and everything to lose. He has nothing to gain by confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, it could have got him and maybe even did get him into trouble. He maybe lost everything. But in losing everything, he gained immeasurable riches and blessing. He came to know Jesus and was given access by him to the God of the universe. As we read the account of the crucifixion of Jesus, what we're supposed to pick up is that confessing Jesus to be the Son of God is the only true response. So let me ask you very directly, is it your confession? Have you confessed that this is who Jesus is and that he has really died for your sins? There's a real weariness to this passage. On the one hand, it's, it's very, very precious, very dear to us. Yet on the other hand, it's, it's challenging and confronting. You, you just cannot avoid seeing what Jesus has done. It's impossible to ignore it. It's impossible to suppress it or to deny it. The evidence is here and it's right in front of us. We've covered a lot of ground tonight, but all that we've thought about is best summarized by that little children's hymn I mentioned at the beginning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. L is for the love that he has for me. J Jesus went to the cross out of love. We, we kind of forget that sometimes, but he went to the cross out of love. I am the reason he died on the tree. It was my sin that brought him to earth. It was my sin that he atoned for. It was my sin that held him there. And it was your sin as well. F is for forgiveness. And now I am free. You can be free now and forever if you would only trust in Christ. And upon trusting him, you'll be able to enjoy him. E is to enjoy being in his company, in church, in life, and one day in heaven. That's part three of three days that changed the world then. The crucifixion, the charge, the cry, the curtain, and the centurion. The thing is, there's more to come. 
Normally when someone dies, that's the end of the story, the end of their story, but not Jesus. And we'll cover that next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for these precious verses which tell us about the crucifixion and death of our Savior. And we throw ourselves on him tonight, trusting him with our very lives, knowing that because he has died, all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. And Father, we pray that you would speak on by your spirit through your word to those who haven't yet trusted in Christ, that they, like the centurion, might confess that this man, Jesus Christ, is truly the Son of God. Father, we pray that you bless your word to our hearts tonight, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.